All right. And the rest of us, how many of you are ready to go through 2 Peter? All right. Can you stand up with me and let's just pray together. We're going to talk about the, the destruction. I'm not going to be able to get into the sin of Balaam. Uh, I, we're not going to have time. The more I went into this, looked at this, the more I realized I've got to spend some time on this destruction of Sodom because there is such a, a flurry and a, a flood of really attack against what the Word of God says about this topic. And my calling as a teacher, as a preacher, as a minister of the Word of God is to teach it and preach it as it is to people as they are. And so we're going to get into it. I want to spend this time on it, and I just can't wait for it to go over radio. Oh, help us, Jesus. <laughs> because it'll be in the West. It'll be in the Midwest. It'll be in the in California area. And wow, okay. Palm Springs, uh, Vegas. All right, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the word. We thank you for your word tonight, and we pray that you will open our understanding. Lord, we throw out our own ideas, and we receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to literally save our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions from the attacks of the enemy. So, Lord, speak to us. Will you breathe a prayer tonight and say, Lord, I receive your word? Renew my mind in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them this is going to be good tonight. Perk up and listen. All right. Now, Second Peter, I've shared with you uh, the last couple of times. This is our fourth uh, Wednesday night in Second Peter. But I share with you that Second Peter and Jude are like brother and sister. And we're going to be going into Jude after Second Peter. They're really, really similar. As a matter of fact, they agree together. They complement one another. And really, Jude almost could be Third Peter. Or Second Peter could be First Jude. So that's where we're going with this. But let's look at what Peter had to say about a very, very important subject. Now in chapter 2, you're going to find Peter providing three Bible illustrations of apostasy. What is apostasy? It is when you take the truth and you throw it out and you walk away from it. You take the truth, the truth of God, you throw it out, and you walk away from it. We're in an age right now of incredible apostasy, at least in the West. There is apostasy everywhere in the West. People, churches, Christians just throwing the Word of God out and choosing to bow to the pressure of the secular culture which I refuse to do. As a matter of fact, God help any church that does that because your usefulness is over. You think you're making yourself more useful. When you throw out the, the scriptures and let the culture come in with the idea you're going to reach the culture by becoming like the culture. But no, you reach the culture by being very different from the culture. Now, Peter pulls three Bible illustrations of apostasy out of the Old Testament. The fallen angels, we talked about those last time. The ancient world of Noah's day, the antediluvians. And the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And how God brought judgment on all of them. The angels, the antediluvians, 
and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, last time we looked at Peter's description of God's judgment on the first two. The fallen angels and the world of Noah's day. But now we're coming to the third illustration, the judgment of Sodom. What a sobering judgment it was. Look at what he says in verse 6, 2 Peter chapter 2. If he, that is God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by doing what, everyone? <laughs> wow. Burning them to ashes. Why did he do that? And made, say it with me, made them an example. So we're supposed to be looking back on what he did and going, there's his example. That's what he thinks about it. He made an example of them, of what is going to happen, future tense, to the ungodly. Now I want you to notice two things here. God himself both condemned and judged the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes. This was not a man. A man didn't do this. A man didn't go in there and overthrow the city and burn it down because he didn't like what they were doing. It says God did it. God did it. Their lifestyle is deemed ungodly by Peter, riding under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you something about me before I go into this now. Um, I'm called to teach the Scriptures. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to lay out the Word of God for anybody who wants to, to look into it and see for yourself what it says. There's two words, exegesis, eisegesis. Now, listen carefully. Exegesis means that you pull out of the Scriptures what God intended to say to you. So somebody who practices exegesis is an exegete. They pull out of the Scriptures by universal laws of interpretation what they were intended by God to say. That's what it's talking about when it says they're rightly dividing the word of truth. Eisegesis is when you read into the scriptures what you wish they said or want them to say. And you, so you try to bend them and shape them, twist them to say what you wish they said. That's eisegesis. We are not eisegetes. We are exegetes. It is not my calling to read something into it that's not there or to make it say what I want it to say. It's my calling to pull out of it as a teacher what God actually said. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist. This is what we're about to read is very clear. So I'm just going to lay out tonight some words, some verses for us to look at, and we're going to exegete these verses. That is, we're going to take from the words and from the passages what God intended to say to all mankind. Now, in Romans 1, God further elaborates on how he views homosexual practices. Let's just see what he says. I'm just going to read it to you. Wherefore, God also gave them up. Now, I've underlined the, the key words. Gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who changed the truth of God into a lie? and worshiped and served the creature more than worshiping and serving the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. But he doesn't stop there. For this cause. Why? What cause? 
because they changed the truth of God into a lie, worshiped what God created rather than the Creator Himself. So for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. He's saying this was not the way God created male and female. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, natural sexual relations, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working what is unseemly. Now who wrote the Bible? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, meaning it's God-breathed. It is breathed out by God, all Scripture. Jesus said, here's how exact the Word is. He said, not one jot or tittle shall pass away, not one comma or punctuation point, until all these things be fulfilled. So Jesus said, the Word of God is literal, it is perfect, and it will all be fulfilled. So who wrote it? God did. So what we've got in our culture today is this huge movement to, to counter and contest and do away with what we're reading. All right, let's go on. Now listen to the adjectives that used by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, breathed out. So what did the Holy Spirit, what adjectives did He use? Unclean, lustful, dishonoring, a lie, vile, unseemly, unnatural. These are God's descriptions of the homosexual lifestyle. Now, I, I can just hear it. Well, you're, you're, you're being hateful. No, let me give you, watch this. Morality is not hate. Let me show you something. See, because the deal, it's almost like homosexuals, those in that lifestyle, have come out as, as if this is the only thing that, 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 Christians come against when it comes to, or not come against, but disagree with when it comes to sexuality. Or they feel picked on, that this is just really focused on and picked on by God or by the Scriptures or by Christians. The only reason I felt led and felt like I really needed to take a whole night on this is because I didn't pick this fight. But when they're trying to teach elementary school children, indoctrinate them, put the idea in their head that they may be this way and that that's okay and that it's normal, that it's normative. And there is this huge push in this country and in the West to normalize and justify and and really define morality down, then somebody's got to say something. Somebody's got to... But I, I want to... And, and believe me, I'm not condemning... If you know me, you know that I don't condemn. 
Uh, I receive people. I love people. To say that you disagree with a sexual lifestyle does not make you phobic. It doesn't make you hateful. It just means you disagree, that you don't think that it's right. Have we gotten to the place in America where we cannot say, I think that this or that is wrong, and that's simply what I feel about a certain thing? Have we now gotten where we don't really have free speech anymore? Where, where if I disagree with your lifestyle, if I think it's destructive or hurtful or wrong or sinful, that that makes me a bigot or hate-filled? You know, it's not as if God is picking on homosexuality. I was just looking at a few passages uh, today where God deals with sexuality, period. Revelations 22, 14. Listen to this. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates, and may enter through the gates into the holy city of Jerusalem. But outside are dogs, sorcerers, and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now their God is just, 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 it's a shotgun at all sexual sin. And he says those involved in sexual sin, and the assumption here is these are people who have not met Christ, these are people who do not know him. Uh, if they have not repented of these things and come to him, they're not getting into the city. Listen to Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Well, there's God saying some very strong things about fornication, adultery. He didn't even name their homosexuality. How about this one? 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, there's the first one, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, there's the second one, nor homosexuals, there's the third one, nor sodomites, and that's talking about male prostitutes, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He listed four different kinds of sexual sin there along with their terrible consequences. And he did not isolate and pick on only homosexuality. Homosexuality in God's eyes, according to the Word of God that I'm holding in my hand and we're looking at tonight, that Word considers homosexuality one of many sexual sins. Now, the pressure to accept homosexuality as an inborn, genetic, born this way, so therefore valid predisposition is immense. That's the pressure out there now. See, see, you really can't say anything about this, and how dare you say anything about this, because I'm born this way. And, you know, that's a double-edged sword, because if, if, I'm a, if I'm a believer, and all believers, everyone in this room struggles with something, don't put your halos on with me. I'm like, you're a saint, but everyone in here has that one thing you struggle with more than anything else. Okay? Now, um, here's the problem with the born this way. If you're going to say that somebody is born homosexual genetically, then what's to stop an adulterer from saying in divorce court, well, hey, you know, I've got the gene. It's the adultery gene, and I can't help myself. 
Or what about the person who's always living in sexual sin? And you go to them and you say, you, you tell me you're a believer while you're living in sexual sin. Well, because I got the gene. I can't help myself. See, you've got to be careful when you get into the realm of genetics. Because when you get into the realm of genetics, you're opening a Pandora's box. You're, you're, you're opening the door for anybody to say, you know, it, you know, my granddaddy was a thief. My daddy's a thief. I know I've got the thief gene. I've got the klepto gene. But this message, see, this is the battle right now. If either it's true or it's not, if you're born that way, you can't help it. And what you do is you make God a torturer. Because God has created you with a gene that is going to be continually be in conflict with His Word. So He's putting you on a torture rack. Since we are born this way, the homosexual community, some, some in the homosexual community claim, our lifestyle and practices are to be accepted, embraced, and even taught to children, which they're doing in California and other places in the country, actually teaching them at five years old and up, and even taught to children as a viable, normal option. It's okay if you're this way. Don't feel bad about it. It's just born this way. But God's Word, along with scientific uh, study, says otherwise. The Boston Globe published an article on February 7, 1999, that contributes to the growing body of evidence that homosexuality is not genetic. Serious scientists have long known that a simply genetic cause for homosexuality was highly unlikely. But the mass media, who you can always count on to take it wrong, I have a bumper sticker on my car. I'm not a bumper sticker guy. But I finally couldn't take it. I got a bumper sticker. And it says, I don't believe the liberal media. I don't. If it's religious or political in nature, take what they say with a tablespoon of salt. Because they really have proven themselves woefully biased. Uh, towards many times, oftentimes, most of the time, unscriptural positions. But now, enough of that soapbox. Let's move on. The mass media conveyed the misimpression of genetic causation to the general public. In the Globe article, now this is the Boston Globe, very secular. The Boston Globe. Prominent researchers admitted the distinct limitations of the born that way theory. The Globe article stated this, quote, the research project in 1993 that all the media jumped on and ran with that indicated many gay men shared a common genetic marker in the X chromosome was hailed by the media as a momentous scientific discovery and a huge breakthrough. The idea of a gay gene offered an ironclad defense of homosexuality. If it was genetically predetermined, then being gay could not be cast as deviant behavior, something correctable. Six years later, however, that gene still has not been found. The gay gene is like the missing link in evolution. It has not been found. Can I say that again? Because look, if I'm a believer out there, and I struggle with this, because many believers do, and that's why I want you to understand I'm not condemning you. But if I'm out there 
struggling with that. I want to know I don't have a gay gene. Because if I believe I've got a gay gene, I am beyond help. I can't help myself. But if I know that that's not true, and that I'm really fighting something that God told me I can have victory over, I want to know it. So, the gene hadn't been found, and interest in that gay gene, and enthusiasm for the gay gene, research, has waned among activists and scientists alike. And then again in April 2003, a major genetics consortium called the Human Genome Project was completed. In this conference, most of the major science journals reported on the progress in the field of genetics. And many who were hoping for the discovery of a gay gene were watching for the results of this major genome project. The one piece of information that never materialized from the Human Genome Project was the identification of the so-called gay gene. Again, it had not been found. You know why? It's not there. It's not there. It's not there. Now, let me show you something. The fact that there is no gay gene does away with the homosexual community's claim that they are a legitimate minority group deserving special minority rights. The argument goes like this. Just as a person cannot help being black, female, or Asian, I cannot help being homosexual. But skin color and other genetic traits can be traced through inheritance patterns and simple Mendelian genetics, not homosexuals, who are identified not by a trait or a gene, but rather by their actions as is someone involved in fornication or adultery or bestiality or anything else. Scripture indicates that like all other sexual sins, it is a choice. I don't pretend to understand all this. I've sat with people struggling with this. I've sat with people who told me never in their whole life were they ever attracted to a member of the opposite sex. And I have wept with them. I want you to know that. I've walked away hurting with them. I've gone home and told Kathy, that session with that person broke my heart. But I do believe there is deliverance and an answer and that you're not hopeless because the power of the cross, the blood of the cross, the power of the Holy Spirit the Word of God can do anything. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm just being as honest with you as I know to be. I am just reading to you what the Bible says. Now, Paul writes, and I, this really hit me one day, Paul writes three times in Romans 1 that an exchange had been made. Now watch this. Those who had ended up really going down in that lifestyle, it says they had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, I'm talking about those he's naming in Romans 1. I'm not pointing anybody today. This is between you and God. But this is what Paul says about the people that are on his mind that the Holy Spirit was ministering to him about. He said they had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the glory of God for something else. 
and they exchange the natural for the unnatural. Can you say the word exchange with me? The, the, the exchange is a verb, and a verb requires a choice. There was an, if, you know, if I give Bill this clicker for his pen, I made the decision to exchange something. It was a choice. If I didn't decide to exchange it, it would not take place. There was an exchange, which means the will was involved. The word exchange is a verb requiring a choice was made. Otherwise, God would be utterly unfair in judging it, which he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. How could God judge somebody if he made them a certain way? Who can resist God? So it would make God a cruel, cruel torture master. If he made you with a gene that went totally contrary to nature and brought you to doing things that you had no control over, that makes God a diabolical torture master of the universe. And that is not what God is or does. God is love. And every good and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of change. So, Pastor, what about temptation? How, why am I tempted that way? Why is somebody tempted to anything sexual? Come on. You say, well, Jesus never said the word homosexual. He never said the word bestiality either. He didn't need to. Did he? He never used the word. There's a lot of sexual words Jesus never used. From time to time, God acts in a way as to make an example and to show what he thinks about a given aspect of human behavior. And this is exactly what he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. If he doesn't act that way all the time, it is because he's patient. And because having made an example, he lets it stand at that. A graphic, unforgettable display of his wrath as a warning to all. Peter said, God did what he did with Sodom and Gomorrah to make an example. Of what? Of what he felt about it the destructiveness of it. The overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah is just such an example. It is God's sobering showpiece of what he thinks of homosexuality. And in other places in the Bible, he judged adultery, he judged fornication. Not just homosexuality, but this is what we're looking at because this is what Peter talks about. The twin overthrows of both the pornographic lifestyle of the antediluvians and the homosexual lifestyle of the men of Sodom stand side by side in Scripture. Both Peter and Jude point us back to these events. The Word points us back, points us to these events. The Lord Jesus foretold. One mark of the end times would be that society once again would become as pornographic as it was in the days of Noah and as perverted as it was in the days of Lot. You don't think Jesus said that? Look what he said in Luke 17. Jesus said... In the red ink, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. What was it like? They ate. They drank. Oh, no. They married wives. They were given in marriage. But what did they really do? They totally ignored the message and preaching of Enoch and Noah. And we know that their lifestyle was depraved. What this verse is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, is they were just going on like they hadn't heard a word. 
They had 10 ears when it came to the Word of God, the message of repentance. But then Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus said it's going to be just that way. Now, what did he say about Lot? Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold. Interesting, he doesn't mention marriage. They planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained. Fire and brimstone from where? So it wasn't a volcanic eruption. It came from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be, said Jesus Christ, who saved our soul, so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The same thing, same way. Ten ears, nobody listening, everybody making fun of the prophets of God. Peter tells us that God turned the twin cities into ashes. The phrase ashes comes from the word tephrao. It's very strong. Tephrao, which is found only here in the Bible. It paints a graphic picture. The ancient Greeks used the word tephra to describe the ashes of a funeral pyre, a pile of wood on which a dead body is ceremonially cremated. It was not a pretty word. Ashes. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when they had not listened to Abraham and they had not listened to Lot, the twin cities were engulfed in fumes and flames, burned to the ground. I was George, uh, who we were with this week, went to the Middle East, and he requested to be taken to Sodom. He wanted to see it. Where had it been? Now, most of it's under the Dead Sea, but he said, Jeff, I went up to one area where they, they assumed that the ancient city had stood, and I picked up the dirt. He said, you've never seen more worthless dirt in your life. It could not have grown a thing. It was totally dead, worthless dirt. The rest of the city plunged out of sight beneath the Dead Sea. And the whole scene was left as a sobering scene of desolation. Now, everybody say praise the Lord. Let's talk about the deliverance of Lot. Lot, however, escaped. God answered Abraham's prayer. What did Abraham do? Remember he talked to God, said, if there's 50 righteous, 40, 30, 10. Come on, God. Because he knew he had his nephew Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah and his family. So he prayed and prayed and prayed and interceded. And finally God said, okay, if there's a handful of righteous, I'll spare it. And that's exactly what God did. And look what the Bible says. Peter wrote, he delivered just Lot. That is, he rescued him. God made a qualitative difference between Lot and the people of Sodom. God knew who was right and who wasn't, and he knows now. God says the same thing about Noah. Noah was a just man. God knew it. He was the only just man in the entire antediluvian world. God saved Lot, not because he was perfect, but because in his heart of hearts he was right with God. And he had come also under and into the blessing of Abraham. In fact, Lot should have remained with Abraham, and I guarantee you he wished he had. It was a terrible decision on his part. He was drawn by the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh because the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah were lush and green and beautiful, and he was drawn by the beauty and the lushness of the land instead of by the wisdom of God. He should have stayed with Uncle Abe, the blessed man. It was a bad decision on his part. 
He took his family down there, his belongings, everybody in his family was corrupted. He lost daughters and sons-in-law. When he parted ways with the man of blessing, Lot paid a high and horrific price for moving to the cities of sin. He lost his family, he lost his fortune, and his friends in Sodom, they were all left. His sons-in-law thought he was a joke. He lost daughters there. When the angels told Lot, they said, they said, you better get out of here quickly. When the sun rises, this is all going to go up in smoke. We're going to bring judgment on it. In the darkness of night, Lot had to run to his children's house. I want you to think about this. He knew time is up. This is it. This is the final grains of sand. We've only got a few hours when the angels are waiting in the house. Hurry up. Do whatever you're going to do. We're leaving at sunrise. He had to run to his daughter's house. Several of them, several daughters, sons-in-law, ran to them, tried to plead with them. What he saw on the way, because he didn't go out at night. We know he didn't go out at night. The things that he saw and heard in that hellacious city right before the judgment of God, we will never know. He ran to his daughter's house. Please, sweetie. Please, sweetheart. I'm telling you, this place is about to go up in smoke. God's about to judge it. It says the sons-in-law thought he was a great big joke. Corrupted by living in a corrupted city. Ran to the next daughter's house. Next son-in-law made fun of him, mocked him, ridiculed him. He ran back home through those dark alleyways and streets. Not not just knowing that it's about to end, but with the horror of knowing he could not get his children out. I believe tears running down his face, panic on his face, heartbreak. He runs to the angels. They said, come now. It says he tarried. I know why he tarried. He's thinking of his kids. They took him by the hand, and they whisked him out. And as soon as they were a distance out of that city, it fell. Say, Pastor, that's heavy. Lot, we are told, until this happened, was vexed with the filthy lifestyle of the wicked. Vexed means to be tormented. Lot's inner turmoil was no light thing. What tormented him was the manner of life of the Sodomites. That's what tormented him. The Bible's use of the word filthy, because that's what Peter described it as. I didn't. The Holy Ghost chose that word. Not Jeff Wickwire. The Holy Ghost chose that word. Filthy paints a picture of wantonness, licentiousness, and lasciviousness. It means an insolent disregard of decency. Peter now tells us what vindicated Lot. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. It was the things Lot saw that tormented him. You know, there's some things you should never see. There are just some things you should never see. One doesn't have to look far in our day to be vexed by what the eyes encounter, do we? Perversion is flaunted right in front of us at every turn. Depraved lifestyles, gross immorality, open debauchery are the order of the day. No more shame, no more blushing. Nobody knows how to blush anymore. There is no blush. There's no more blushing. Instead, there is flaunting of it, being proud of it. And we're now told that if we're going to be with it, 
We've got to accept it all as normal. I'm not going to let them define deviancy down for me. And it was the things Lot heard. He heard the obscenities. He heard the blasphemies, the anger, the rage, the verbal abuse that go along with a perverted lifestyle. He heard it. And it says every day his soul was tormented. Lot heard and saw it all. For down there in Sodom and Gomorrah, it was not just an alternate lifestyle. It was the lifestyle. Peter closes verse 8 by calling such a lifestyle lawless. I didn't pick that word. The Holy Ghost picked that word. What does it mean? Animos is the word, Greek word. It means to have contempt for the law. Not necessarily the laws of man, but for the natural laws of God. Y'all are quiet tonight. I told you this was going to be strong. Y'all are looking at me. I'm just reading the Word of God to you. Somebody say amen or oh me or something. Amen. All right. According to the Bible account of Sodom and Gomorrah, are you ready? Remember, I said this because the Word says it. A society that tolerates and even promotes the homosexual lifestyle is ripe for the judgment of God. There's not a civilization in the history of mankind that has normalized that lifestyle and not gone down, not gone under, not ceased to be. It may not be as dramatic as Sodom and Gomorrah, but remember, Sodom and Gomorrah was God's showpiece. It was his example. Now next, Peter brings a glad word. Everybody say, all right, a glad word. A glad word for the saint. Here it comes. The Lord knows how. I want you to read this with me. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Give the Lord a hand of praise for that. He knows how. Oh, yes, he knows how. If you're a righteous, that is, you're a person who knows the Lord and you're vexed by what is around you and what is pulling on you and the allurement of this world, God knows how to deliver you out of it. The Lord was well able to preserve his own in their terrible trials. He delivered Noah by way of the ark and he delivered Lot by way of angelic intervention. And one day he's going to deliver you and I by angelic intervention and by the power of resurrection before his wrath falls in all of its fury on a Christ-rejecting world. And he will deliver us from the fiery wrath that is to come on the ungodly. Now this glad word to the saints is followed by a sad word for the sinner. Look what it says. God is able not only to deliver the righteous, but to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The word for reserve is used of those who are being kept under guard against the day of judgment. And the word for punishment tells, or punished, tells us that without repentance, they cannot escape the judgment of God. There's a judgment coming, church. Now, I'm, I'm a preacher of the love of God. We're in the final moments and seconds of the age of grace. But the day is going to come when God judges. It's so clear. It's coming. It must come. Their case, the case of the unjust, the unrepentant, those that refuse Him, has already been referred to the Supreme Court of Heaven to be taken up at the great white throne judgment. And Paul wrote, they shall not escape. 
Now next, Peter focuses on those who seduce the church, spawn cults, and deny the faith. He emphasizes four features. Now he's, he's focusing now on those who worm their way into the church and seduce the church into false doctrine. They deny the faith and they spawn cults, false teaching, erroneous, blasphemous, ungodly, unscriptural teaching. He says there's four characteristics of these people. Here's Peter writing, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, and they despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Oh, boy, that goes on so much. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now let me give you these four words and tell you what they mean. Uncleanness. He says they're unclean. What does that mean? It means the act of defiling or of being stained. Have you ever said something, done something, thought something, and you felt stained? Not me, Pastor Jeff. No way. I'm saved. Come on. Right? You said something, did something, thought something, and you felt stained. You felt defiled. You felt like you needed to take a shower spiritually. That's uncleanness, but these people revel in it. They never get rid of the stain. The people in Peter's crosshairs were indulging all of the foulness of their lower natures with abandon, just as the people of Noah's and Lot's day did, staining their character. Boy, is it a challenge in this day to not stain your character, not defile your spirit. Do everything you can do. That's why I tell you all the time, stay in the Word of God. Stay in prayer. Read the Bible every day. Because the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. I mean, the Word of God will cleanse you, wash you. The washing of water by the Word. I mean, we need to be washed and cleansed of being spiritually stained all the time. We're in a dirty world. Have you ever gone out for a day in the park and come home clean? It's a dirty world, right? Same thing spiritually. Now, despise authority. When he says they despise authority, despise means to think slightingly of something. These reprobates did not know how to honor God's appointed authority in the earth. They had no honor. Presumptuous, he says of them. That means to be daring, to be shameless, to be irreverent. They had no sense or respect for what was sacred or holy. That's our day, church. We hear things, see things on television, in the media, now, that if they had come on 30 or 40 years ago, the people that put them on would have been arrested forthwith. They will, de they will defile the name of the Lord. They will mock the name of Christ. How many ungodly, blasphemous plays have come out where Jesus was cast as living a homosexual lifestyle. Jesus was cast as a fornicator. Jesus was cast as an adulterer. I read of a brand new book that came out this week by a well-known author who used to be on Oprah. And this author's book shows the return of Christ and Jesus, the, the return Christ, shacking up with a prostitute. And I read that and I go, oh, what? They'll face someday. 
no sense or respect for what is sacred or holy. You got things that are common and you got things that are holy. You got things that are just standard. You know, you got paper plates and you've got china. And our day, people, you know, we see it in church. People come into church. They have no respect when the word of God is being preached. Sometimes they get right up and walk out real slow, looking around like there is nothing going on, like we're watching a movie or something. And I marvel at it. I don't mind somebody getting up. I understand you got to get up sometimes, but it's when, when they'll get up and just saunder out and talk as they're going out and you know, do their little computer thing as they're going out. And I go, don't they realize that the eternal word of God is going into the hearts of people right now and they're acting like we're watching Romper Room? No sacred, no holy. He's called the Holy Spirit. Well, self-willed is the last one. Self-willed is talking about a person ruled only by self-interest. Paul talked of those who would be lovers of themselves in the last day. They're just self-willed. Now, Peter next describes their incredible brazenness, and I'm going to close with this. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries like this author has done, like these playwrights have done. I don't get it, that they don't have any fear of speaking evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might don't bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. What's that talking about? Jude tells us what he means. Jude reminds us of the time when after Moses had died on Mount Nebo, Satan tried to gain possession of his body. You can read about it in the Word of God. He tried to get possession of his body. Why? Probably because he wanted to, to deliver it into the hands of the Israelites that they might turn it into an object of worship. Because Satan was always trying to get him into idolatry. Because Moses had, or God had told Moses, you start walking up in the mountain, and, and when you get up there, I'm going to take you home. Satan tried to reveal the body, and some believe bring it back into the presence of the Israelites so they would worship it, make an idol of it, and once again fall into idolatry. God sent Michael, the mighty archangel, a mighty prince in the heavenly hierarchy, to prevent Satan's success. We're told that Michael, when he encountered Satan, who was once the light bearer, the powerful archangel, and it says he dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Even the mighty archangel with a fallen archangel would not get into a word contest with him, would not attack him personally, but he got behind the authority of God and said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. And Satan fled and left the body of Moses alone. Now, why did Jude and Peter tell us this? Because this amazing restraint on the part of God's mighty archangel only adds to the folly of men who do what angels dare not do. They look up and they curse Christ. They curse God. They curse the Word. They curse the Holy Spirit. They curse the things of God. They curse the people of God. And when they do it, they are 
damning themselves for that day when God will bring their life in front of them like a technicolor movie and say, look what you did here and here and here. A very frightening day. Well, next week we'll deal with the sin of Balaam. Can we stand? I know this was strong tonight. I know it was. But you know what? If we taught this 40 years ago, it would have been business as usual. What we heard tonight, you don't hear very many places. You just don't. But aren't you glad for the Word of God? God is good. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we just thank You. For your word, it is true. It's a delivering word. It's a cleansing word. It's a helping word and a healing word. And we receive that word and we pray for people, Lord, honestly and sincerely. Trapped in this lifestyle or the lifestyle of any other sexual addiction or other kind of addiction. And we pray for deliverance to flow from the word of the Lord. Deliverance to flow. And help them to know, Lord, that though the sin is condemned, God loves the sinner and gave his son for them. In Jesus' mighty name. Let's sing before we go, Joe. Lead us.